didn't suffer with it for a long time. She's put off surgery. So I just hope that it goes well. Um, did that do it? Yep. What is... I don't understand this thing. Um, I came across a passage, it was in Chesterton, I think it was Chesterton's book on St. Thomas. I've loved that book forever. It just, it's a bedside reading to quiet my mind at night. My way of quieting my mind is reading St. Thomas. <laughs> Um, sometimes, or, or Chesterton. Um, there's a wonderful passage where he's talking about St. Thomas in his faith and to, trying to describe a quality to him and saying of him that um, he had this enormous sense of humility and gratitude um, for Christ and wanted to show his gratitude by um, by giving himself to the suffering that he took on for us. Um, one of the ways we show our gratitude for Christ is by entering in, I mean, trying to join in the sufferings in whatever degree we do it, but it's a way of showing our gratitude to him, entering into that life. Um, so I just put that out there. I mean, it's, it's, it seems to me it's something we all hope for, want, um, we carry wounds, and sometimes they're terribly disturbing and sometimes they can be overwhelming, but the church always reminds us that, um, that we, we enter more fully into the life of Christ by, by, and showing our gratitude to him by taking on some sufferings. Anyway, in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for our life from you the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass this morning, um, your divine life that we carry. Um, heal us, please. Let your life fill our being, each of us, so that we can become whole with you. Um, the readings today, Father's homily, Christ yesterday, today, tomorrow. Uh, we are here to do your will, Lord. Strengthen us in our efforts to love as you do, to bear each other's sufferings, sins, um, particularly when it's hard, to make you more present in all that we do, particularly with each other. Again, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing. Um, let these works stir in us um, a greater desire to find you all around us, to open our eyes, to see you where often we may not. Um, ask a special blessing for Linda, let her surgery go well, and for Darlene and Dick, um, and for anybody else whose, uh, whose troubles or sufferings we're carrying within us. I mean, Lynn all that we Conklin. do. Sorry? Lynn. Lynn. Um, and for Lynn. Um, um, help us all to um, remain in your presence in everything that we do through the rest of this day. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Lord. Amen. Okay, can everybody pull out the Jonesbury poem?
getting a little bit confused because you know I'm trying. We, it's, this is a repeat of Monday, even though you know I'm covering the same material. That's always a completely different class. <laughs> Don't ask me to explain it. It's just, um, and every once in a while I get confused and wonder where we are because um, I'm looking forward and looking backwards and wondering if we've done this work before. I think we did these poems before the loss, but I want to do I want to do it now because it's particularly appropriate. Um, Jones Ferry was a contemporary of Melville's, and I, I want to take a second with that. Um, last week when I was trying to decide what poems to read, he came to mind because I love his poetry. He, he's an unknown American poet, which is a sad thing for me, he, he, because he did some things that no other poets in the 19th century did. Emily Dickinson is the only one that gets close to what I'm trying to what I'll try to get at here. Um, he was a contemporary of Melville and a part of the group called the Transcendentalist. Those of you who know American history will know a little bit about them. Emerson, Thoreau, and a number of other men, and Jones Ferry came in and out of that circle. Most of the men in that group um, saw the intellectual gifts that Jones Ferry had, but they looked at him in a spirit of ridicule, sort of intellectual contempt. Um, he was a brilliant man, but he was a Quaker, and he, he had a deep belief in his faith. You all know the, it's called the Friends, the Society of Friends, the Quaker. It's going to be ironic here because uh, Bildad and Peleg are Quakers, but they're very violent men. And if you know anything about the Quakers, you know that they, they, um, they are pacifists, they hate violence, they do everything they can not to be violent. So, the book is an interesting, it, it goes along with this indictment that something's happening that, with our faith, 19th century. Jones Ferry um, believed very deeply that you could only come to the mystical union that we're capable of having with each other and with things and with God through the Spirit. And not, that couldn't happen without giving our will to him. So he believed that it was only in giving our will to the Spirit that, that we could enter into this union with things. You'll see that that's what this poem is about, very much about that. And he looked at the transcendentalists, and think about this, they were all transcendentalists. They, they, they espoused this being above things, there's this power. But it wasn't Christian in the way that we know it. Emerson was a Unitarian. What you find in the transcendentalists is a breaking away from traditional Christianity towards Unitarianism. There's not a trinity of gods. They believe, Emerson believed that this one superpower, there's over, over, what he called the oversoul, this transcendent power that made it possible for men to click into this large power. But it's not Trinitarian. So that's a radical break from traditional Christianity. One time, Vary was visiting Emerson and Emerson was making fun of him and saying, so when you put your elbow on the Fireplace mantle? Is it God making you do that or are you doing it? I mean, he was really making fun of it because he thought the idea that, that man didn't have any free will, he turned his will over to others, was ridiculous. So one of the reasons, one of the reasons I'm especially glad to read this poem here because it, it sets up so nicely with Melville for this reason. It's a part of the crisis that is going on at this time. Um, Where's it going? Um, 
If you know Emerson, you know that one of his most famous essays is a landmark essay in American letters. It's an essay called Self-Reliance, probably one of the most important works, one of the most influential works in the 19th century. Academics, as a rule, love that essay. So if you were to go through a state college or a university and do 19th century American literature, it would be unlikely that you wouldn't meet that. Because it, it, it so defines an aspect of American character, particularly as it was helped formed by Emerson. Um, one critic, one of, one, of, one of the men that had such an influence on my life, looked at Emerson as the, he called him the right hand of the devil. I mean, I, I, there's something to that in my mind. Self-reliance, Emerson's push to remember, if you, if you know the essay, in that essay he says, um, each person should follow his own beat, his own, his own drum beat, his, um, follow his own inclination. Always bliss. Huh? Always bliss, like Joseph Campbell would say. I don't know, just, I, um, but follow your own beat, your own, the beat to your own self, to thine own self be true. So that aspect of the American character has a, has a strong reinforcement from Emerson. If you think about that at all, I hope you'll see the danger. I mean, as I've come to see it, it's, it's certainly one of the grave dangers for me. It's a grave danger for all. I've got a story to tell on, on me, whether today or next class sometime. But the more we rely on ourselves, the less we rely on other people or God. If we're self-reliant, we don't need things. Um, the self-reliant character, it seems to me, gets close to Paul's sense of the law, the Jewish. I can be good on my own. I don't need... So it encourages kind of pride and a, and a tendency to, iso to isolate oneself. And so um, both Hawthorne and Melville were deeply offended by Emerson because their whole, and you'll see this in this book, I think it's, it's, at, the, it's at the core of Ishmael as a character. Both Hawthorne and, and Melville talked about what they call the brotherhood of sin. So self-reliance for them was its opposite, you know, instinct. To be self-reliant is to put yourself above other people, to isolate your... Melville and Hawthorne both believed that we only could be who we are in this brother, what they called the brotherhood of sin. That we are in, we are in sin together. Um, it's one of the ironies of Moby Dick and we'll, we'll see that. So Jones Vary is a, a very important person and I'm just glad that we could have him with Melville. Because if you put the two together, you, you can get a greater sense of what's going on in the 19th century. That there are all these currents, um, and we're in the middle of a crisis. And as you've heard me say, I believe we're still in it. That, that, the, that the crisis that developed then, we're, we're still carrying forward and dealing with now. So, so I'll read two poems, um, The Lost on the front page and The Dead. In The Lost, Vary is looking at this, the lost. And what he's, and, and um, I, in, on uh, Monday night's class, I, I, I used the, the phrase, which would make sense, I think, to most of you, The Walking Dead. Yes. It's that running TV program. Yes. Um, it seems to me what he's talking about, The Walking Dead. But think about the difference, because I, I don't watch that program, but I've flipped in and out of it, and I've seen it. It's a, it's a ghoulish kind of program, dark, and, 
And it seems to me so much part of what's going on in America. Um, if, you, if you listen to Joan's poem, he's talking about those people who are so preoccupied with earthly things to all the substance give, that they, that they live in a dichotomy separate from things. And he sets that condition, that earthly condition of being lost against heaven, the other kingdom, where people will be in perfect union. And the, he makes it clear that that could be so for anybody now if they live with the spirit. So that when they look at the day, they, they will be one with the day. The day will be in them. When they hear the birds singing, they will be singing. They will be one with that bird. When they smell the flower, they will be one with the flower. That's the Edenic condition. We get this from Elliot and others. That We'll get it from Faulkner when we do Faulkner. That was the condition in Eden. We, we didn't objectify things the way the modern mind does. We don't look at things as objects. Because to understand them is to see them as an object, to see that's that, you know, that thing. And I, we, we, we see people in terms of ideas, objects. We objectify them. Very is talking about that state of mystical union where we become one with the thing because we're with the spirit. And he's looking at the people around him and seeing that that's not so for them. They're the lost. Okay? They're playing with what he calls in a beautiful times toys. We make of these things play objects. And, and all of these are just signs of this dissociation, the state of dissociation that we live in. Thank you. The lost. <clears throat> the fairest day that ever yet has shown will be the day when the day, when, will be when thou the day within, let me start over, sorry. The fairest day that ever yet has shown will be when thou the day within shall see. The fairest rose that ever yet has blown, when thou the flower thou lookest on shall be. But thou art far away among time's toys, thyself the day thou lookest for in them, thyself the flower that now thine eye enjoys, but wilted now thou hangest upon thy stem. The walking dead, I mean, our mortality hangs over us and it separates us from things. But wilted now thou hangest upon thy stem, the bird thou hearest on the budding tree that hast made sing with thy forgotten voice. But when it swells again to melody, the song is thine in which thou wilt rejoice. And thou new risen midst these wonders live that now to them dost all thy substance give. Because we, we let our lives get taken up with these other things, whether we want to admit it or not, we're the lost. We're dissociated, we live in that. Just think about how much that characterizes, typifies modern America or the modern world. The dead, the next page. I see them crowd on crowd, they walk the earth, dry leafless trees, no autumn wind laid bare, and in their nakedness find cause for mirth, and all unclad would winter's rudeness dare. No sap doth through their clattering branches flow, when springing leaves and blossoms bright appear, their hearts the living God have created to know. Whoops. Who gives the springtime to the expectant? Have ceased to know. Oh, sorry. No sap doth through their clattering branches flow, when springing leaves and blossoms bright appear, their hearts the living God have ceased to know. Who gives the springtime to the expectant year? 
They mimic life as if from him to steal his glow of health to paint the livid cheek. They borrow words for thoughts they cannot feel, that with a seeming heart their tongue may speak, and in their show of life more dead they live than those that to the earth with many tears they give. It's a, another picture of the walking dead. So, um, the, Set that against the movie, the series Walking Dead. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't read this without hearing the gentleness, the absolute gentleness and his awareness of what could be possible. So he makes us aware of this dead state, but in his own, his presentation of that, we have an example of its opposite, what could be. Um, so the irony is really beautiful here. He's making us aware that too many people live this without knowing it but in his own writing gives us some sense of, of exactly what's lost because we don't have that gentleness, that spirit. So it's beautiful poems. A wonderful poet who doesn't get the, isn't given the recognition I think he deserves. Okay, let's start. Just a very, very quick review, because I want to get on to the book. Um, we, we know that Melville and Hawthorne and Derry and other people are writing out of a crisis. That the New England Protestant culture is in collapse. That what started as this vigorous religious revival, um, the Puritans, principally the Puritans, coming fleeing Europe because of the religious persecution, the Catholics as well coming here. So the early foundings were these um, Puritan foundings you know, in Salem. The southern founding, as you know, is a plantation. It's an economic founding. That's one of the fundamental differences between the north and the south. And small pockets of Catholics, they were fleeing persecution and came here. It was predominantly Protestant. But that vital um, founding is now in a state of collapse. That the theology didn't hold, that the, some of the vigor and the commitment of people who had to give up so much was lost. Um, we had our, <coughs> sorry, we had our Revolutionary War, we broke free from, broke free, sorry, from England became a people with its own identity. Um, you know how important religious liberty is. It's written into our first, in our constitution and our amendments. So. <coughs> but that culture's in crisis. And these works are, are works that came out of that crisis. So two ways of reading the world are in conflict. A rationalistic scientific way that's gaining strength because, because it, it can do so much and a biblical way. A very different way of reading the world are, are um, in conflict. I want to come back to this in a minute because I want to look at it um, in terms of Melville and Ishmael, I mean uh, Ahab and Ishmael, because Ahab and Ishmael have two radically different ways of reading the world. So this whole question of reading is fundamental. Again, I feel like I'm, I sound like a broken record. We're reading, you know, <laughs> artists are aware of how important reading is. Um, Melville's indictment of 
Christianity, that was a, um, a major part of what we looked at last week, and it's going to be a concern in all that we do from here on out. I talked about the Abraham line and the way it, it, um, it continues through Christ. Christ fulfills it and carries it forward. So at that moment, if you look at this line that begins with Abraham and carries forward, that Christ is the one who brings it to fulfillment and carries forward God's work. Remember in the Old Testament, um, it, he makes it clear, even though he calls the Jews out, the Jewish people, and, and makes them his people, his children, for, he makes it clear that this mission has got a universal aspect. All the nations of the earth, as, grand, you know, as, as many as the sands of the sea. So it's carried forward that Christ, at this point, from our perspective, according to our beliefs, Judaism breaks off. It, it carries forward the law without carrying forward the self-sacrifice that Christ brought into the tradition by what he did. And then Islam breaks off from Judaism. So both of these religions are under the law. They define themselves in, in terms of the law. So the, 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 the belief that a, that a God loved his people so much that he was willing to die to fulfill the law in love and mercy does not get carried forward here. That was one of the major themes at the end of Winter's Day. What you can see happening at this point is what I would call a, a, an early modern form of rationalism. There, there are instances in the ancient world, in, the, in the, um, um, the Greek world, when it was in collapse, and the Roman world, when it, it was in collapse, that all these forms of spiritualism and odd religious cults that are highly rationalistic get formed. We can say that what's happening here is the same sort of thing. And that it gets picked up again with the Protestant world because you've got major theologians who are claiming things about Christianity that according to the Catholic faith aren't true. Um, my reason for spending time on this last week is because Moby Dick is an indictment of Christianity. It's, it's a serious one. And we're going to look at it in just a minute. One of the things, and I said, I thought, I believe it's really important that we do not exempt ourselves from that indictment. It's important for us to see ourselves there. But I wanted to make clear a couple of differences between the Protestant worldview and the, and the Catholic. And I said last time, it's really important to see this. Um, we don't get Christ immediately. We all know that. The people who lived when he was alive did. Um, it's just, I love the Simeon story. Christ was a baby, and he recognized that he was God. <laughs> I mean, the miraculous things that are going on there, it's stunning to me. But um, we, don't, we don't get Christ immediately, except in the Eucharist. And I want to come back to that. But um, we get Christ mediated through the Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, and John which is very Greek and, it's, and, and metaphysical when you set it next to these. The point is, um, the nature of Catholicism is we get Christ through a community of people, and it's absolutely crucial to see there's nothing private about it. We're not in a Protestant world. This is absolutely Catholic. Um, we get Christ from a great variety of people who are saying the same things. Now, interesting thing, Christ brought to fulfillment a tradition, he carried it forward. He came to fulfill the law. 
That tradition is in existence before the Gospels are written. They couldn't have written about it if it hadn't been. Okay. I don't know if somebody didn't like what I just said. <laughs> was there something in there that was heretical or anything that, that I'm not aware of? It scares me. <laughs> we don't get Christ directly. We get him mediated. But there's a tradition before these gospel writers write. They're already practicing the Eucharist. Paul, we know that from Paul. So the, 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 the scriptures are written. The tradition is carried forward. We don't isolate ourselves on the Bible. You know, if you read Luther and Calvin, they all say sola scripture, sola fide, so faith alone, scripture alone. We have a large Catholic world forming, and the real presence of Christ is carried forward. The church, the church's one from its beginning was always sacramental, always sacramental. How could it not, if Christ was being carried forward, the miracles that he performed had to be carried forward. Those miracles were embodied in the sacraments. There's something miraculous about that. We believe Christ is present. That's true for Eastern Orthodox. There was, there was no divided world up until the 11th century, 10th century. Yeah? It's one world, East and West, sacramental. If you go into the East right now, people who go into the East say that they, they say, it's shocking to go into the East because all the churches are sacramental. In the West, they're not used to seeing that because in the West you've got a divided Christendom. All of the East is sacramental. Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, Syrian <coughs> Orthodoxy, it doesn't matter. So if you go back into that ancient world, you have to say, holy cow, this is the way it was for everybody. Something happened in the 16th century with the Reformation. It, it breaks off. And what happens is, I'm going to give, this is my reading now, I, I think Father would agree with this. I think, I think I'm in agreement with the church. What happens after the Reformation with the removal of the sacraments, so that people are not now partaking of the real presence of Christ, what, you're, what, what we find is what I would call a return to the rabbinical tradition in the temple that the rabbi is in the temple interpreting scripture. That's what he does. There are no sacraments in the temple, right? You've got a rabbi reading scripture. If you go to most Protestant meetings, it's a, it's a minister interpreting scripture. What do we do? We come to hear scripture, but the center of our mass, the real reason we come is for the Eucharist. Something miraculous is taking place on the altar. We, we enter in, reenact that sacrifice. We're committing our lives, taking Christ in us, hopefully, to make us more able to be sacrificial victims ourselves, to offer our lives. So when we, when we look at Melville's critique, I just wanted everybody to be aware that there's, of the difference between a Protestant worldview and a Catholic. Um, and I want to be careful about this, and I've said this, so I'm repeating it again. Um, if we don't see ourselves as included in this indictment, then I don't think we're reading it well. Melville's not dealing with a sacramental culture. It, um, it's not dealing with, I think he's got, I'm not, it's just hard for me to figure out where he is on the Catholic thing, but, but I think I gave you this description. The first time Ahab is described, 
He's described as having a crucifix, a line run through his body, except it's incomplete. It's described that way. It's like an incomplete crucifixion. As if somehow the, the, the Protestant culture has, has incompletely entered into the crucifixion. So the question for all of us, and I'm saying this for us as Catholics, is, is that so for us? I'm, Paul said that the veil fell over the Jews. The veil fell over them. That's Paul's critique. I'm going to say that the veil has fallen over us. Do we live the crucifixion in our lives? Do we, do we enter the cross with Christ? Do we take that seriously? So I don't want to make this distinction with any encouragement to exempt ourselves. That's not what I'm doing. I just would like everybody to be mindful that there are differences here for us to be aware of. But having said that, my encouragement is for us to learn to see this because it's part of our character. It's who we are as Americans. So, is that clear? I hope so. Linda, yeah. Something, Linda. After the Reformation, you said, clarify, um, they stopped receiving real presents. Sacraments mm -hmm. rule. What? When did? The, the high. How did he just stop and start again? Well, hold on just a second. The high. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how historically it unfolded because I don't have that good a grasp of history. The high, the high Anglican, the high, basically the Anglican, the high church continued to keep a place for the sacraments. They they do today, but the Protestant church, by and large, the broad church doesn't. The encouragement was. Um, for both from both um, Calvin and Luther, but certainly with Luther, that each person was a, a priest himself. That we didn't need this sacramental order. So over time, the sacraments lost their value, and then people. I, th I think it's a fair statement that the broad Protestant Church at large, people take communion as a as a commemoration not as a real presence, because that sense of the sacramental has been lost to that world. If you go into an orthodox world, Eastern, in the Eastern part of the world, the sacrament is still a sacrament. You go into the Catholic world, it's always been a sacrament. But the larger Protestant world doesn't look at that. It, it's I, I would describe it as a rationalizing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's accommodating religious mysteries to reason. It's a, it's a it's a, it's a reductionist. It's removing something, the, the sacred, the sacramental, from the heart of Christianity. So. And one of the things I hope to make clear, I mean, I, I hope everybody will experience as we go through this book, Ishmael is recovering that sense. He's finding mystery and extraordinary divine things everywhere in nature. Ahab wants to strike it. I'm going to read it in a minute. Ahab wants to strike at nature because nature has hurt him. It's, it's corrupt. That's the modern, largely Protestant view. It's, there's something, there's an affinity with it in science because of science. modern science is nature is empty. It's denuded. It's meaningless. Um, Ishmael's recovering that sense. He's not Catholic. He's Presbyterian, but he gives up his Presbyterian you know, beliefs here in the, here in the work. Um, Ishmael is recovering that. He's finding wonder everywhere. That's why the movie, you know, if you go, if you if you watch the um, the Gregory Peck movie, you won't get that sense. That whole thing would be lost to to recover that. We have to be with Ishmael. We have to take this long, 
complicated, <laughs> detailed journey. We have to read the book. We have to, we have to participate in the book. It, one, of, one, of the, one of the teachers at um, no, or, uh, UD, dear, dear friend of ours, um, um, Huh? Jean Kurtzinger. Kurtzinger. God, sorry. Jean Kurtzinger. Dear, dear man. Dear, dear. I, I know I've mentioned him before he died some years ago. Um, he loved Moby Dick more than any other book ever. I mean, he did. I should show you. I'll bring the book because you might want to buy it. And, and I wrote an introduction for it. It was an introduction with a dear friend of mine. But he talks about readers as co-creators. I know he's got the Eucharist on his mind that once we enter into that book, we become co-creators with Ishmael. We have to live that life out ourselves. So, um, the yes. The book starts as Ishmael. He seems melancholy, depressed. He is all of okay. it. Yeah. yeah, and so that's his starting point. Yes. Yeah, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. All right. Um, because already in the beginning, what I wanted to do is get out the shore because we're leaving land and going out to sea, and I wanted to try to cover the land. He's already changing. He, he, when he opens, he's, you know, he says, I'm ready to take out a gun and kill people. He, he's bringing up the end of funeral lines. He wants to shoot somebody. He half wants to commit suicide. Um, he's in a bad way. And, he, and, he, and he's scared out of his skin by this cannibal who jumps into bed with him this night. But, but a day later, a, a, and the next morning, he wakes up with his arm. You all know, he wakes up with his arm on him, and they're married. <laughs> And, and I, I see, I take that you're going to see there's going to be this extraordinary chapter called The Monkey, The Monkey Rope. Oh, yeah. The Monkey Rope. Where, where we're going to learn, what, this is the story I've got to tell. I don't want to tell it today. I want to tell it later. But it, it, that, story, that Monkey Rope chapter was led to a life change for me. I'll tell you about it in the next sometime as we move on. But, but it, it has a, 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 an amazing truth about marriages about marriages. In the monkey rope scene, um, I think it's Ishmael, Ishmael's on, on board. Queequeg is in the mouth of the whale cutting it out. And the monkey rope ties them. And, and he knows, Ishmael knows, that if something happens with the whale and Ishmael goes down, no. or I mean Queequeg goes down, he goes down. Yeah. And his response is that, what kind of injustices do we have to live in this life? Because he thinks it's so unfair that if Ishmael's going to die, he should die too. I, I want to wait till we get there because the, there's a truth that he comes to in there that's certainly had a shed an ironic life on, light on my life. But, um, but the changes that take place begin here, and I'll get to them in a second. So already, it's his meeting with Queequeg that begins to break into that hard heart. And he begins to love already. This savage um, that enters his life. Um, okay. Just very, very quickly. Um, today, today, I want to look at, at Melville's treatment of America in the opening scenes because you know how important plots are. We, I keep going back to plots. I, I don't want to go into it much, but if we look at the, the story this way, we can say that the opening scenes have to do with land, with the culture, with American culture. 
So Melville does a lot in these opening chapters to give us a sense of who we are, our identity as a people. And remember this, this is crucial. Those of you who have been with, been together here since the beginning, you know that the, that the, um, the central theme of every epic is a founding, a refounding. That it deals with the disorder of a people, something enters into that world to help deal with that disorder and overcome it and, and creates the conditions for a new kind of order. And we have, to see, we have to ask what that is. What are the disorders? We saw them in Dante, in Florence, in the, in the, in the church then, the struggle between church and state, the Iliad, the Odyssey. I'm going to call this an epic. Some people call it a novel. Whose central theme is a refounding. There are these fundamental disorders. They're here in Christianity. What does Ishmael come back to tell us? What do we learn? What's the new founding? We saw it in the Iliad with honor. We saw it in the Odyssey with marriages. We saw it in the Aeneid with the city, the, the, this new sense of a city. All of those came together in Dante. And remember, most, one of the more important things with Dante is he becomes a hero. What Melville's doing with Ishmael picks up with Dante. Ishmael writes this book. He's the central figure. He's exactly like Dante. Um, think about the, the difference that's taking place. Sing Muse, the anger of Achilles' son. Remember, each one of the epics begins, there's this high, noble opening where the poet invokes the gods. It's noble, it's high, it belongs to an aristocratic world. Sing Muse, the, the, the man of many ways. Sing Muse, a fate's fugitive, that's Aeneas. That, he, that he's pursued by the fates. So every one of those epics has this set, out, set, set against those, call me Ishmael. We're in a democratic world. It's breezy, offhand. It's a little bit like Dante said, you know, in the beginning of my life, I, except now it's call me Ishmael. We have entered into a democratic world, a different spirit, but we're in an epic world. What is, a, what is Melville showing us about Democracy, um, a couple of things to see right from the beginning. Um, and, and it has to do with two themes coming together. When Ishmael first introduces himself, he lets us know that he's going out to sea. He shipped on a merchant ship before, but not on a whaler. He's gonna go out on a whaler. He doesn't, he doesn't know why. He, um, he's coming from Manhattan. He wants to get to Nantucket. But he missed his boat, and he has to spend the night in um, New Bedford. Now, one thing I don't want—I want to not pass over this because this is too important. He missed the. Think, remember those lines in the opening chapter where he said, talks about fate, and the news lines, and there will be a new president, something, and and fights in Afghanistan, and these little words that will be Ishmael ships out or whatever it was. He sees himself as this minor character but he's recognizing that there's a providential action going on. Remember, do you remember? Um, on page 34, just quickly. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. Is that the, does anybody feel like we're in a time war? When I, I mean, I'm not kidding. I feel, I, is this real? Is what, are, 
Yeah. It, it makes me want to go out and feel people's bodies to make sure we're here, because I feel like we've been trans-beamed up or beamed down into another world. Time war. Grand contested election for the pre God, I can't read that. I feel like I'm not in a real world. Whaling voyage by one Ishmael, bloody battle in Afghanistan. And up above he says, he's talking about, and doubtless my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of providence that was drawn up. Does he understand that at the moment? No, remember, this is Ishmael going back, writing, you know, in retrospect, right? Because could he have written that then? Is everybody clear? Not away. Because he's just going whaling. So we're getting two different perspectives, like two lives are merging. We've got the Voyager going out who has no clue, but he's the only one who survived who's writing about it. So he has some sense of a providential action. Now, does that mean he has no free will? No. But think about what's happening right now. He's going to, to uh, Nantucket. He misses the ship. While he's in Nant or New Bedford, he has to make all these choices, and he ends up in Spatter's Inn, where he's going to meet Queequeg. Is everybody following? Does he lack free will? No. no. Is there a providential action apparently going on? Yes. Seems to be. He misses a ship, he's here, he's going to meet, you know. So, <coughs> strange things are already happening here at the beginning that we've got to be aware of. So what we learn immediately when he's searching for a place to stay is he comes across this black church and outside of it are these ashes burning and he looks at it as Gomorrah. Um, so one aspect of America, whether we want to admit, one aspect of America is Gomorrah, here it is at the, in the beginnings. He ends up at Spouter's Inn and um, he makes clear over and over and over again that the one thing that defines America is its heterogeneity. That it's composed of people from all over the earth. So wherever we go, we're meeting people. And he'll say later that one out of every two people in America is not from America. We are that diverse of a people. So that's our, that's our character. Um, and he says of Nantucket, Things making them at Nantucket come from all over the world. The citizens of Nantucket come from everywhere. And he names the places. The ship itself, he says of the hull, its complexion is darkened like a French grenadier's. The masts, as if they were cut um, from Japan. Um, they stood as if spines of the three old, old kings of Cologne. The decks are worn and wrinkled like pilgrim worship flagstones from Canterbury Cathedral in England. She was apparelled like a barbaric Ethiopian emperor, a noble craft, most melancholy. All noble things are touched with that. Hmm? No, I'm, I'm not. So when we look, I mean, you, on the chapter, it's the ship. It's called, so if you want, go back to that chapter. But what I want to do is just list those now. So what we see in America is, by its very nature, it's not like other countries. Not France, not Spain, not... Not any, not any, not any country and nation in Europe. Not any people in Africa, China. The very nature of America is different from anything that's ever existed, with the exception of ancient Rome. 
And even Rome was not as diversified as we are. Okay. Now I want to take a look at this just for a minute. Um, Ishmael is a reader. How well does Ishmael read? What does he read? Maybe I should put it this way. Yeah, I, think, I think he's an incredible reader because his references back to, I mean, so many different uh, biblical and, and cultural and all his references are just, uh, they're so diverse. Mm -hmm. And he obviously knows a whole lot about a whole lot of places yes. in America. Yes. Um, it, yes. It, it, it's in, I mean, it's incredible. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, Debbie, here, look, here's my question. Is that Ishmael going out, or it's, Ishmael the poet writing? It's probably Ishmael the poet writing. What's this probably? Think, yes or no? Is it one or yeah. which is it? Give me. No, I think it is. Okay. Is him, 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 him reflective, because I don't think that he going out. He knows enough to yeah. be able to do that analogy. Yeah, yeah. It's a real. I hope everybody's aware. That is, how much are how much how aware are we? I mean, you know, one of the things we've been doing with all the lyrics, like supernatural love, a little girl pricks her finger. How aware are we of what's going on in front of us all the time? And how much when we look back, if you just were to sit down and, you know, to go over the courtship before our wedding or some trial during our marriage, some struggle we have with each other as husbands and wives, at the time, how much do we see? When we look back, on them, if, we had to, if we had to sit down and write, how much more would we see? I'm not kidding about this. How much comes, because even, I'm not even sure even reflecting on things gets to as much as we get to when we write. I mean, I found when I, the writing that I'm doing right now, and I struggle and struggle and struggle, and find myself saying, I haven't said it yet. I haven't said the right thing. I haven't, it's not the way it is. That we keep, we can keep reflecting, but the act of writing, when we have to get it down so that it's really sane, takes us even deeper. So, so I, you, I couldn't agree with you more that he is, he's so aware. Did he have this awareness when he first went out? And how much is he bringing to it? So that it's an interesting phenomenon because we're watching Ishmael go out, but it's like another spirit, I don't know what to call it, is with him, seeing more, helping us to see things that obviously he couldn't have seen when he was. My answer to the question is he's not a very good reader at all. Oh. Going out. Oh, That's yeah. right, going out. Yeah. Because, or another way to put it, how well does he read the signs? He is melancholy. He's within himself. He's withdrawn. He's following, bringing up the lines of um, funeral lines. He's preoccupied with death. Seriously preoccupied. I mean, I'd maybe even points of wanting to take a gun and shoot himself. He has that moment where he said the ancient Romans would have driven a sword into themselves or something. You know, he, There's something more good about him in the beginning. In that state of morbidity, how, much, how aware is he of his world? How much does he see? There are hints of death everywhere around him. The 
bringing up funeral lines, the musket, the one to fall on a sword. When he comes to the spouter inn, he sees Lazarus outside. And you know from the parable that um, Dives, the rich man, ignored him. Um, Peter Coffin is not a rich man, but, but Ishmael makes clear that relative to Lazarus, he was a rich man. So in the two figures, the Peter Coffin and the, the um, Lazarus figure, we've got a parallel to the, the Dives and Lazarus figure in the Bible. There are signs of death. Here's a man that should be taken care of. It's freezing. He's out on the curb stove, dying. Nobody paying attention to him. When he goes to um, when he goes to the chapel and he hears uh, Mapple's sermon, he hears a sermon in which um, uh, Mapple's telling the he's laying out the Jonah story. If you remember in the sermon, the sermon he tells that that part of the story where Jonah goes aboard ship and the captain who's driven by cupidity, he wants to make money, tries to feel out new people to determine whether they're guilty or not because he knows if they're guilty, if he gets some sign and apparently he's a good reader of character, he knows he can charge them more. Um, somebody's taking advantage of somebody around a morbid situation. When Ishmael goes on board, what's gonna happen? Bildad is gonna, is gonna cheat him. He's going to offer him the 777th lay, the part of their intake, whatever they pull in, which is nothing. This man's going to be, it's supposed to be a three-year voyage. He's going to be at sea, at sea for three years, and he's going to get the 777th lay, which is nothing. Peleg is so mad at Bildad that he offers him, I think, a 300th lay. Um, so he at least tries to be more fair. Um, when... And the, the, the focus of the Maple sermon is the, is the death that Jonah undergoes, that he's swallowed by the whale and, and is resurrected. He's spit up um, by the whale. When they leave, um, and <laughs> Queequeg is surrounded by death. There's that funny story they tell the next night when Queequeg tells him, when Ishmael makes fun of him because of his practices, he tells him the story that when he signed up for the first time, remember they gave him a wheelbarrow and Queequeg didn't know what to do with the wheelbarrow so he put all of his belongings in the wheelbarrow and then put the wheelbarrow on his shoulder. And Ishmael had great fun at that until Ishmael, I mean Queequeg, was offended that he should be laughing at these silly things and he tells them the story of the white man who visited his ceremony one time and they brought out the punch bowl, the drinking bowl and the man put his hands into washing. So we get this sense that in the, in the presence of new conventions all of us look foolish because we don't, we so take conventions, we take our conventions as the real ones. And there's something wrong with the conventions of other people, so. But Queequeg is surrounded by death and he tells him the story of, of, of that experience he had when they killed 50 people and cooked them and he spent all night eating these people. <laughs> I think Ishmael gets nauseous when he listens, tells him to stop and, and Quico tells him he almost threw up because he overate that. <laughs> so there are all these, all these signs. How aware of is he of, at the time? How could he be? Death is around him. Death surrounds him. And he goes to Mrs. Hussey's place. And if you remember, the, to, 
the, the sign outside of her, this is a, a bed and breakfast place, it's her lodging house, two black pots hanging from cross trees suggesting a gallows with two tombstones. That's where he's going to stay. Um, so there are signs everywhere. How well does he read them? There's no way he could see them. But the fact that he, as a poet, as a writer, he's come back, they're there. How well do we read them? Are we seeing the sign? And the, the most important turn, because I want you to see this, go to, um, I think it's, um, I think it's 21, maybe, yeah. Um, and on chapter 19, page 130, this to me is the most important sign. And Ishmael completely misses it, completely misses it. Page 130. Um, the two of them have signed up. They're ready to go aboard. And they encounter this prophet um, on page 130. And he approaches them and says, have you shipped in her? He repeated, you mean the ship Pequot, I suppose, said I, trying to gain a little more time for an interrupted look at him. Aye, the Pequot, that ship there, he said, drawing back his whole arm and then rapidly shoving it straight out from him with a fixed bayonet of his pointed finger darted full at the object. Yes, I said, we've just signed the articles. Anything there, to, anything there about your souls? About what? Um, or perhaps you haven't got any. No matter, though, I know many chaps that haven't got any. Here it is again, the walking dead. I mean, mm -hmm. the picture he's giving, it's not as morbid as ours today. That's, that's an indication of how far we've come or descended. Obviously, they're dead souls. I mean, this, or at least according to this prophet. Um, no matter, though, I'd see many chaps that haven't got any. Good luck to them, and they are all the better off for it. A soul's a sort of fifth wheel. Having a soul makes our, doesn't make our life easier because we're so conscious of all of our wrongs, our problems. What are you jabbering about, shipmate, said I. Um, he's got enough, though, to make up for all the deficiencies of that sort and other chaps. Abruptly said the stranger, placing a nervous emphasis upon the word he. Who's the he? Ahab. Yeah. <coughs> quick, quick, said I. Let's go. This fellow's broken loose from somewhere. That's, wouldn't that be our response to somebody talking like that? And, and how, do we read? When people meet us that, out, are, that are outside of our conventions, how much do we miss something that may be important for us to hear? Because we think he's insane. <laughs> He's talking about something and somebody we don't know. There's the giveaway. He knows absolutely nothing. You know, he's missing everywhere. No, we haven't. He's sick, they say, but he's getting better and we'll be all right again before long. All right again before long, laughed the stranger with a solemnly derisive sort of laugh. Look ye, when Captain Ahab is all right, then this left arm of mine will be all right, not before. There's obviously something wrong. His arm's not going to heal. Go on over to 21. They're going aboard now, page 137. It's early in the morning. It's dusk. It's very dim. Um, um, 
a couple of lines down, it was Elijah again, he says. Going aboard? Hands off, will you, said I. Looky here, said Queequeg, shaking himself. Go away. Ain't going aboard then? Yes, we are, said I. But what business is that of yours? Do you know, Mr. Elijah, that I consider you a little impertinent? No, 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 I wasn't aware. Go down. Elijah, said I, you will oblige my friend and me by withdrawing. We are going to the Indian and Pacific Oceans and would prefer not to be detained. Ye be, be ye, coming back after breakfast? He's cracked, we quick, said I. Come on. Hello, cried stationary Elijah, hailing us when we had moved a few paces. Never mind him, said I, we quick, come on. But he stole up to us again and suddenly clapping his hand on my shoulder said, did you see anything looking like men going towards that ship a while ago? Struck by this plain matter-of-fact question, I answered, saying, Yes, I thought I did. See four or five men, but it was too dim to, too dim to be sure. Very dim, very dim, said Elijah. Morning to you. Once more we quitted him. Once more he came after us. And touching my shoulder again said, See if you can find them. Now, will ye? Find who? Morning to you, morning to you. The line, see if you can find them, for me is like Shakespeare's, who's there? You know, the opening, who's there? See if you can find them. What is, what is he looking for? These men are dim. They're presented as shadows. Fadala will be the source, in some ways, an image of the source of evil in Ahab. I mean, gen, genuine evil. He's shadowy. It's almost like he does, he's a person, but it's almost like he doesn't have any being. See if you can find him. Now, how well does Ishmael reading the signs? He's saying, get away. I think you're being impertinent. So it seems to me what Melville's showing us um, that on the way out, before he ships, there are warnings to him everywhere. All around him, there are signs of death. In fact, there are signs of maybe an evil does he have a clue about any of it? No. Not a clue. So, here in the opening, Melville is setting out this, this Christian culture, and he's, he's presenting us with an Ishmael, who really is a dear, it seems to me, sort of character, innocent, um, naive, melancholy, he, he's depressed, I mean, whatever we want to say about him, um, and then he meets this... Uh, this barbarian who's going to change his life. I want to stop right, I want to just very quickly go over some some of the Christian critiques and I want to look at Father Mapple's sermon and then I want to stop for the morning. So, um, but, but this is all in an attempt to lay out the land to give us a background because this is the Christian culture. What happens on that ship only focuses one aspect of America. That is a commercial enterprise going out. But it's an image of a, the commercial nature of America. So that in one sense, we're back in Dante's world, looking at the commercial republic. Here, we, the, whole, the whole venture, it's like taking a business with a CEO and putting it in motion. This is a, a focused look at the commercial nature and something dark behind, at the bottom of it in the American character. But this is giving us the context. This is America. It's heterogeneity. It's dark things. It's um, and it, more than anything, it's it's spiritual hypocrisies, which we're going to see here. Let me just quickly pass over those. Um, 
turn to 7, chapter 7. After their meeting, Ishmael sets off for the chapel, and what he ex- what he experiences when he gets there is this sense of um, loneliness and isolation on the part of the men. When he enters the chapel, he he's greeted by all these tablets with writing. Now, now think about writing again. The importance of it. When you look in the chapel, what you find are men who are looking at these tablets. That It's like somebody giving a caricature of people in, in what they read, the kind of reading. If you go through the market and you see all the tabloids, you know that people are, lots of people are reading those things or they wouldn't be there, that that's what they fill their lives with. Here, people are focused on these writings and all of them are, are, um, are tombstone tablets. Um, um, identifying loved ones who are lost, okay? On page 66, in the middle of that first paragraph. A muffled silence reigned, only broken at times by the shrieks of the storm. Each silent worshiper seemed purposely sitting apart from the other, as if each silent (coughs) grief were insular and incommunicable. The chaplain had not yet arrived, and there were these silent islands of men and women sat steadfastly, eyeing several marble tablets. So, it reminds me of the Odyssey. Remember when we began the Odyssey, everybody was trapped in the past. The marriages, remember Pylos and Sparta, Menelaus and Nestor, and they could not escape the wounds of their past. So here in modern America, we're seeing the same thing, and it's isolated. This grief that they care from the past, that they have not come, there's no, there's no Christ bringing them into a present, or at least not a lived, because we're not meant to stay in our grief. We're meant to come into hope whatever the circumstances. Here these people are trapped in the past and that, that the, the sadness, the grief that they feel isolates them. They're alone. Um, on page 69, um, or, well it starts on 68 towards the bottom. Um, if he but embarks for the remotest indies of the living earth, why the life insurance company pays death forfeitures upon immortals in what eternal unstirring paralysis and deadly hopeless trance yet lies antique Adam who died 60 around years ago. We keep talking about um, how important life is and yet get preoccupied with death. And he refers us back to Adam going over in 69. Yes. There is a death in this business of wailing, a speechlessly quick, chaotic bundling of a man into eternity. But what then? Methinks we have hugely mistaken this matter of life and death. Methinks that what they call my shadow here on earth is my true substance. Methinks that in looking at all things spiritual, we are too much like oysters observing the sun through the water. In thinking that thick water the thinnest of air, methinks my body is but the lees of my better being. And in fact, take my body, who will? Take it, I say, it's not me. And therefore, three cheers for Nantucket, and come a stoveboat, and a stoveboat when they will. For stay, my soul, Jove himself cannot. So this is one of the first hints 
of Ishmael facing death directly and commenting on it in a affirmative way, a positive way. Um, look at um, look at seventy six. This is Maple's sermon. He takes the Jonah story as his text for his sermon. On page 76, he describes that moment when, when Jonah goes aboard and the captain cheats him um, um, in, the, in, the, in the bottom paragraph. Now, Jonah's captain shipmates is one whose discernment detects crime in any, but whose cupidity exposes it only the penniless in this world. Go down a few lines. He charges him thrice the usual sum and it's a senitude. Then the captain knows that Jonah is a fugitive. This is exactly what will happen with Ishmael when he boards, when he signs, exactly. Melville's making it clear, Ishmael is a Jonah figure. What he's done is what the Bible doesn't do. We know the parable in the Bible. What Melville is doing is filling that out, day, hour by hour, day, so we can actually, so that it's not a parable, we enter into it as an actual experience of our own. Just like what Eliot did with the Journey of the Magi. You know, we go into that. Now that Jonah story is ours. We enter into it here. It becomes a part of us in our time. Um, the storm comes up and the men take lots. Um, Jonah has to identify himself. He's a Hebrew and he, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm Hebrew. And then he has to face the fact that he's running from God and um, the whale swallows him, and on page 81, um, Maple draws his conclusions from the parable. This shipmates, this is that other lesson, and woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him who this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon waters when God has brewed them into a gale. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good name is more to him than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would not be true even though to be false were salvation. Yea, woe to him who in the great pilot Paul has it while preaching to others is himself a castaway. These are all about spiritual hypocrisies. When we make our work, ourselves, our image more important than our love of God. What are we not doing that we should be doing? Go down a few lines. Is not the main truck higher than the Kelson is low? Delight is to him a far, far upward and inward delight who against the proud gods and <coughs> commodores of this earth ever stands forth his own inexorable self. What a wonderful line, inexorable. God has given each one of us something that makes each one of us different. There's something each one of us can do that nobody else can. It won't get done if we don't do it, because each one of us is different. Whatever it is, who knows? I mean, that's, but that, that image of an inexorable, inexorable self, it can't be other, the forces of it. How true, how, how true are we being to ourselves if we don't stand with God in whatever self he's given with. Delight is to him who gives no quarter to the truth and kills, burns, and destroys all sin, though he pluck it out from under the robes of senators and judges. Delight, top gallant, delight is to him 
who acknowledges no law or Lord, but the Lord his God, and is only a patriot to heaven. Delight is to him whom all the waves of the billows of the seas, the boisterous mob can never shake from this sure keel of the ages, and eternal delight and deliciousness will be his, who coming to lay him down can say with his final breath, O Father, chiefly known to me by thy rod, mortal or immortal, here I die, I have striven to be thine more than to be the world's. Um, when they leave, I, um, just quickly, um, when they leave, the two end up that night in bed um, enjoying the smoke. And if you remember earlier, Ishmael couldn't stand quick, quick smoking, and yet that night, something's happened. He, he's not offended by the smoke, and then at the top of 85, as I sat there in that now lonely room, the fire burning low in that mild stage when after its first intensity has warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at, the evening shades and phantoms gathering around the casements and peering in upon silent, solitary twain, the storm booming without in solemn swells. I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me, no more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against this wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits. He goes on, um, going over 86. I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian church. How then could I unite with this wild idolatry? Remember, he quickly whittles away at his little idol, Yojo. How could I then unite with this wild idolater in worshiping his piece of wood? But what is worship, thought I? Do you suppose now, Ishmael, that the magnanimous God of heaven and earth, pagans and all included, can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood? Impossible. But what is worship? To do the will of God. That is worship. And what is the will of God? To do my fellow man what I would have my fellow man do to me. That is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow <laughs> What do I do? What do I... And what do I wish that this Queequeg would do to me? Why unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form of worship? Consequently, I must then unite with him in his, in his. ergo, I must turn idolater. So I kindle the shavings, help, so he enters into the worship and the two worship together. This reminds me of that moment in Tom Sawyer, if, if you know the, when he had to decide whether to give Jim up or protect him. And, and it would have been a moral wrong in his mind, according to the moral code at that time, um, to give him up because I can't remember, Mrs. Watson owned him. So the dilemma he was facing was to go to hell or not. And he chose going to hell because he loved Jim enough to set him free. So both Twain and Melville are dealing with this problem that very often Christianity disintegrates into a moral code. And we find ourselves at odds with that moral code at times, believing that if we go against it, we're actually going to get, when in some sense we're not. It's, it's a code that's become rigidified. It's lost its roots. But here in this moment, we see the first signs of, of Ishmael changing. His splendid heart is softening, it's quiet, he is, he's come. Queequeg has let it, and know that he would die for him. 
um, and Ishmael is, his heart is warming to this man that almost made him poop his pants when he jumped in the bed the night before. One last thing, um, there's that wonderful scene, this is an important scene for setting things out here. Remember when the two of them are walking towards the ship and all of the Christians are eyeing them because here's this Christian white man who's keeping company with the savage. It, it, was, it was a scandal, a scandal to the time. And these bumpkins are making fun of Queequeg and Queequeg picks up this little kid and tosses him in the air and spanks him on the way down and then he lands on his feet. And everybody's looking at what happened in astonishment because to do that took such athleticism and agility. And the young boy goes off crying, screaming that he's been treated violently by the savage and nobody dares do anything and then suddenly the boom from the ship hits the kid and he goes in the water. Nobody does anything. Queequeg instantly jumps in and saves him. And um, Ishmael's description of him was, has there ever been such an absolute innocence? He's so lacking in self-consciousness. Now think about that. This is really important because what he's saying is <coughs> the civilized person becomes trapped in all of these things he becomes conscious of. It's like we wear a con our conscious because we're so aware of what other people think and everything else. Quicken has none of that. He's free of it. Everything he does, he does instinctively. He's a savage. So here in, this, in this, that scene, Melville is setting off an, uh, what is really a noble savage against civilized people and um, a kind of paralysis. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for that gets in the way? Um, reservations isn't the right, but uh, what's the word? can't think of it. Gets in the way of our acting. Restriction. Uh, hmm? Restriction. No, it's... Um, Inhibition. Inhibitions. Inhibitions. Thank you. Thanks. That civilized people develop inhibitions. We're less free to act because we carry on all these masks and, and here's this creature. Now, I'm going to put that as positively as I can because Melville's going to expose that shortly. But here, he set those two things off against each other. This, this noble savage who is completely lacking in self-consciousness, inhibitions. And all the white people should have done something that didn't because of their inhibitions. Last scene, and then we'll stop. Um, when they get to Mrs. to Nantucket and, and they stay in, um, in Mrs. Hussey's um, boarding room, on page 120, page 120, um, Ishmael leaves for a time and he comes back and finds the door locked and he looks through the keyhole, you remember, and he sees the harpoon leaning against the wall on page 20 at the top. I was surprised to behold resting against the wall the wooden shaft of Queequeg's harpoon, which the landlady the evening previously had taken from him before our mounting to the chamber. That's strange. The chambermaid comes, there's this great uproar because they think another man has killed himself because they just had a suicide recently. And the last thing Mrs. Hussey wants is another suicide because her reputation will be ruined. And she, she will be ruined in her business. Her business will go down, her business will suffer. So, middle of 120, Mrs. Hussey soon appeared with a mustard pot in one hand and a vinegar cruet in the other 
having just broken away from the occupation of attending to the casters and scolding her little black boy. So she's been scolding this little black boy. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I don't think we should ignore that. And um, um, she says, what's the matter? Get the axe, for God's sake. Run to the doctor, someone, while I pry it open. Look here, said the landlady quickly, putting down the vinegar cruet so as to have so as to have one hand free. Look here, are you talking about prying open one of my doors? And with that, she seized my arm. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you, shipmate? He tells her what's wrong in the middle of 121. I won't allow it. I won't have my premises spoiled. Go for the locksmith. There's one about a mile from here. But Avast, putting her hand in her side pocket, here's the key that'll fit, I guess. I guess, she doesn't know. Let's see, and with that she turned it in the lock, but alas, Queequeg's supplemented, supplemental boat remained unwithdrawn within. Half to burst it open. Now, he breaks down the door. She's horrified because she's got to make another door, repair another door, whatever the cost is going to be. And um, when um, he comes in to the room, he finds Queequeg at his Ramadan. And you know from the descriptions, when he's in his Ramadan, it's like what didn't happen in Merchant of Venice. Remember when the men were trying to figure out the ship and they went into the church and he said, when I see the altar, I think about ships crashing. In worship, we're supposed to be with God, somewhere in our world with him. Queequeg is in that Ramadan, completely given to it. Um... Mrs. Hussey tells the maid um, to go, what she do, because she said she wants to, um, she wants to kill two birds with one stone um, to make a new um, sign. She, um, she's more concerned with losing her business than she is with a thought that somebody might have died and the death would have meant something. She has no concern for that. Um, on the top of 123, Ishmael remains there when Queequeg finishes his Ramadan. This is what happens. But as soon as the first glimpse of sun entered the window, up he got with stiff and grating joints, but with a cheerful look, limped towards me where I lay, pressed his forehead against mine and said, his Ramadan was over. It's almost like a physical kiss. So, so what do we have? I mean, what do we learn about Christianity? Um, I didn't read that passage. I should have on, on ship. Hold on, see if I can get it just quickly. Um, remember when they're on ship? Where is this? When Bill Dead is um, signs Ishmael on. Sorry, we're... 104. Uh, 104. It's where he ships him on. Oh, yeah, on 114. Just this, just this line. It's, it's at the bottom of that first paragraph. Now, while Peleg was vainly trying to mend a pen with his jackknife, will build that to my small surprise, to my no, no small surprise, considering that he was such an interested party to these proceedings, Bill had never heeded us, but went on mumbling to himself out of his book, lay not up for yourself. It's interesting, the pun, the pun on lay here too. 
Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth, well, Captain Bill did interrupt. What do you say? Now, the transaction is going to play. He's, he's reading that passage from scripture where it says, lay not up your treasures on earth. What is the first thing he does? He cheats Ishmael out of his and Quiquig out of their proper just pay in order to increase his own treasures. So, so what are we learning about this Christian culture? It's driven by cupidity. It loves worldly things. This is the Iliad. It loves booty, it loves material things, possessions, more than it loves people. More than it's willing to go to a cross to love as Christ asks. So if we look at um, Peter Coffin, outside of the inn is a Lazarus figure who's dying. Nobody's taking care of him. Um, I've got a question about Maple's homily, and I want to come back to it in a minute, but um, some say, and I think there's a right to it, that there's a, well, I'm going to wait on, I'm going to wait on that. I want to come back to that. Um, the people who stare, the Christians who make fun and stare at um, Ishmael and Queequeg, the little children who aren't disciplined when they make fun of this, um, Bildad and Peleg, who, who cheat, even, even if Peleg um, adjusts the amount, there's still a cupidity. The, I, the, the descriptions I didn't read and I should have read are descriptions of both of those men as Quakers who make a point of being nonviolent and who spend their lives violently attacking the sea. The image he gives us is of this business enterprise doing everything it can in, in a spirit of conquest. It wants to conquer the ocean. Those are the descriptions, that these men want to master the ocean, to take what they need from And remember Homer's view on that in the Odyssey, what happens when men attempt to master nature. So Bildad and Peleg, and then you've got Mrs. Hussey, who has less concern for this human being and what's going on than she does for the neatness of her home. She scolds this black boy. And the money that she'll have to spend to mend another door. So what we see in this commercial character, this land, this glimpse of Christianity, is that people are, are far more concerned with having money and comfort than they are living across. So this is the context that, that's been set out for us before we go to sea. So we have a context in which to view it. Now, when we go to sea because we're entering sea, we're going to start to enter the metaphysical depths. Then we're going to start looking at the things beneath it. So it's really important that you read closely, even if it's hard. But to take a minute, we, so that's our time today. But I've got a question. I just want to take it. It's, it's time, and I want to, I'm trying to get better at stopping at 11. But how do you guys look at Father Mapple's sermon? How do you look at him? Positive, negative, what do, you, what do you take away from him? He's one of the most interesting figures in this whole thing. He's central to it because he gives us the Jonah story. But how do you look at him? Remember I read that woe to him, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him, cares more about his self and pleasing other people than he does God, woe to him. Delight is doing these things, all delight is this, it's this, it's this. Um, well, is he kind of critiquing the, the Christianity as a 
focused on the prosperity of the individual and trying to bring people back to what Christianity is meant to be. So, so you see him as positive, yeah. basically? This is on page 81, the, the passages that I read. Woe to him in this world, courts not dishonor. He goes on, delight to him who gives no quarter in the truth and kills, and kills, burns, and destroys all sin, though he pluck it out from under the robes of senators and judges. That is, he shouldn't be concerned about prestige. And How do we look at him? I think he's telling them they're on the wrong path. Yeah, say? I think he's telling the, yeah. the, the lay it here, whoever's yeah, there, right. that you're yeah. on the wrong path, that, that we need to, you know, that, that things aren't supposed to be central, that, you know, we're supposed to, mm -hmm. you know, love one another, well, he's not saying love one another, but he's doesn't say that, that, actually, that's right. interesting. He doesn't use delight to him who... Has no law of the Lord, Lord is in the, but he says, um, Delight is to him who gives no quarter in the truth and kills, burns, and destroys all sin, though he pluck it out from under the robes. Remember, one of Christ's great warnings was he said, I, I came to bring a sword. And he also said, I came to make a conflagration, a burn. And he gives this image of the whole earth going up in flames. It's one of those darker. It's very legalistic. Who? Maple? Maple. Yeah. Flesh it out, Don. Can you, why do you say that? What? Uh, a bunch of, like the Ten Commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do you, do you, so is there something, is that Old Testament? Is there something lacking yeah. in him? What, as a Christian? It's the law. What's it lacking? Love. Mercy. Yeah. Mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Compassion. Understanding yeah. of the heart. Yeah. It's just a, Maple's a really difficult character. If, if you look at, a, and by the way, don't forget the, the, the prophet when we think about Christianity because he's warning them about things and they don't see them and they don't pay him any heed, but he clearly has a sense of lost souls, that there are these people who don't carry souls with them, the walking dead. And so that's one more aspect of this critique of Christianity that we're getting in the beginning. Did, well, did I had you? an interesting take on it, and I have no idea if it's mm -hmm. the right direction, but I felt like, like Maple was a severely wounded person himself who was seeking ways to get through that and atone for it. But he didn't see that in the congregation as he pulls up his lap. He didn't he, see he, what? His own, he wasn't, he didn't think they were going to help. I mean, he moves them all together first. They are all separate. He said, get together which isn't an uncommon thing in a church where everybody's sitting in the back or whatever. Mm -hmm. but, but then also, he was struggling so much, I think. I think he's a person who's struggling. And, but he wasn't looking to the congregation to be any yeah. solace to him. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm still struggling with the, the yeah. whole latter thing. Yeah, yeah. He's also, he's separated from... The yeah, he's very far away he's from that. He's in his pulpit. They describe the pulpit yeah. and pulling up... And then he continues to pray after they leave. You know, I think he's trying very hard to... Yeah. Some wound or some connection. He, it's, I'm glad you went, took us back to that image because it's a reminder of how isolated people are yeah. in this world. I mean, Jen, in the chapel, they're all isolated. In one of the um, chapters that we'll look at when we come together next time, Melville is going to describe everybody as isolados, that everybody in this book lives in isolation. Um, let me leave it here, which is because, and offer. Um, 
those two sides to Mample because it seems to, seems to me he's been a Jonah figure. It's fairly clear that he couldn't describe this as earnestly as he does. <coughs> um, he, he couldn't if he hadn't gone through yeah, something true. like so that he's like he's like a um, a prelude, a, a prefiguring of Ishmael, and having gone through this and come back to tell. Let me just put out two sides because I because I think both of what you said and, I, and what Don was saying that is really true. It, he's a curious figure. There seems to be an Old Testament legalist experience that the law is this way and woe to him and woe to him and woe to him. And there's something forbidding in that when he says fire, you know, burn, kill, do everything you can to destroy sin. There's very little that he says that, that expresses Christ's mercy or his love. And remember the problem that we face with Dante, which I, which I take to be at the center for all of us that the great struggle for all of us is learn to order our motions. And we've got to do that by bringing the law and mercy together. When you have one in place of the other or at the expense of the other, we've got trouble. Because either we become too legalistic, too harsh and brutal, and there are times when we have to be harsh, severe things, but will we bring mercy to them? Or if we just have mercy and no law, we get too soft, enabling. So the great problem for all of us is bringing them together. Does, is there anything in Mapple's sermon, when he, when he draws the conclusion out of it, remember, it's an Old Testament story. Is there anything that he does to line up the, that painful side of things, you know, the woe to him, woe to him, with mercy? I, I, for me, I would, I, if I had been, a, if I had been a, in the congregation, I mean, Suzanne and I often go home and we talk about, Father's homilies, we you know, we walk away saying, What do you think? And and for me, I think you know this from our reading together, I, I just so believe that we are asked to reconcile these things, to struggle. Um, whatever the pain will be, and it will be great for us that we do. So that for me is the center of our call. So when I see a character like this in a book, um, I measure him against that. And I, I there's so much to mample that to me is so good. The courage to go against, to not matter if a, if a guy's a senator and he's in sin, go at him. You can't leave that guy there. I just think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to leave people in sin. But to not bring a mercy to what we do is a danger to ourselves and others because we're missing something. We can get self-righteous or legalistic. So Mapple's a really curious figure, and he's central to this. I mean, this is he had more time is devoted to him than almost any other scene you know, with all these Christians. But at this point, just remember, think about Peter Coffin, Mapple, the Presbyterians, um, the difficulty that Ishmael has in entering Queequeg's world and what happens to him when he does, the, the way his heart begins to soften. Peleg Bildad, the prophet, and then finally Mrs. Hussey. Because when you put all of those together, what we're seeing is a, is a Christian culture in trouble that's hypocritical, that is, in, that is losing its faith, not living. What's missing is the crucifixion and love. It, the, 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 the culture's in decline. It's, it's cupiditous. It's, it's too greedy. It wants material things. So that's the opening. Now we're going to go out to sea, and once we go to sea, we're going to begin to explore 
metaphysical issues, the things that are beneath all this. And, and just as a warning, um, it's, it's the, he, the, the, the language I think is amazing. I mean, he's a very poetic writer. But he's going to be dealing with complexities. When Ishmael is in the mast, you know, when he's serving duty up there, he's going to be talking about Kant and Plato and, <coughs> you know, we're going to be all over the world because he's taking us into our own world and, and making not ideas in an academic setting, they're real because these are aspects of reality. So he's, he's actually, I'm going to say, he's inviting us back into a Catholic culture in which we're asked to pay attention to the things in front of us and learn from them. You know, to get out of our heads, to get out of our isolation, enter the world. That's our, that's our voyage. That's, what, that's where we pick up next week. We, end, we begin this voyage with Ishmael. Well, this book help? It'll help some. It's, it, yeah, it's not, I mean, I, you've seen the study guides that I do. It's not even close, not even close to if you if you if you if you think the study guide if you think it would help for me to give you something remember it's going to be far more extensive and right now it's not going to be as well organized as I'd like because I've not but I, I've got a lot if you want if you do I've got to ask you to be ready to pay for it because it'll be it'll be a sizable thing so send an email yeah let me know Oh. Um.